Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Drabblecast, episode 297. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. The apprentice on this week's show, the intern, the rook, the noob, the greenhorn. The apprentice is someone you train to do exactly what you do every day. But if you're like me, you might not be that comfortable giving out your Facebook and Twitter passwords. As usual, let's start things off with a 100-word story. This week's Drabble is called The Necromancer's Apprentice, and it comes to us by way of Aaron Jiwa. Aaron grew up in India and moved to Edmonton, Alberta when he was eight years old, and has been living there ever since. He's been a big fan of the written word since a very young age, and he's been reading science fiction, fantasy, and horror for most of his life. Check him out at AaronJiwa.com. I'll tell you when you're ready for the more advanced techniques. She worked for the necromancer, mopping the floors, washing dirty dishes, and occasionally fashioning golems from clay and bones. After years as an apprentice, she never once learned anything more than how to raise soulless golems that would obey commands. But she'd seen the ritual hundreds of times. How hard could it be? She killed him with an obsidian blade under the full moon and spoke the spells of summoning. And then, as he had once done, she raised him from the dead. Now, she said, teach me. And that leads us to this week's story, The Apothecary's Apprentice, by Craig Lincoln. Craig Lincoln is a fiction writer and northern transplant from Connecticut, who currently resides in Raleigh, North Carolina. When he isn't fueling airplanes, he works on his MFA in creative writing at North Carolina State University. This is his first paid publication. Go, Craig. The story is read to you this week by Dave Thompson, co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle. Check out that awesomeness at podcastle.org if you're into fantasy fiction. You won't find a better place on the net for it. So without further ado, we bring you The Apothecary's Apprentice by Craig Lincoln. back of the shop, I scrub three large cauldrons clean, stripping the seasoning from them because Master Laws insisted on it once the trade caravan stopped coming at the end of summer. Tallow, he called me, on account of my paleness. I used a brush made of iron bristles instead of horsehair, scraping away the brown muck inside, various plant and animal parts rendered into sludge like droppings from sick bull. 
My book lay on the floor beside the cauldrons. Sertanus and the Hydra. It seemed I wouldn't get to read much of it today. Even after these cauldrons were clean, I'd still be scrubbing. Staged back here so when Master Alaz got some stragglers looking for cure-alls, he could show them how busy the shop was, tempting them to buy what they could for surely the stock would not last. Master Alaz stepped into the stockroom, and I watched him as I scrubbed away. He often said that I had a wandering eye. Alaz frowned. His face was deep-set with lines like cracks in a clay pot, and they moved when he spoke, as he spoke now, cursing to himself, asking himself where he'd last put it, pausing to rub his bald head, disturbing the last few wisps of hair. "'Have you seen it?' Allah said. "'Seen what?' I said. "'My cauldron, you twit!' "'I'm scrubbing them right here. Do you have more white spots on your eyes?' Allah's massaged his forehead. "'I wonder sometimes what I've done to deserve you. The small cauldron, the one for special orders.' I jumped up and rubbed my hands together. "'Who's it for? Is there a wizard? Some exotic tribal chieftain? A king?' Allah smacked the side of my head. My ear burned. "'Compose yourself. Have you seen the cauldron?' I was sitting on it while I cleaned. Allah's hand drew back, and I flinched. No blow this time. He picked up the cauldron and hugged it against his hip. "'Wash yourself up and meet me in the front. I have need of you outside your current capacity.'" I came from the back, freshly washed and wearing my apprentice robes. Master Alaz always said half of an apothecary's job was looking the part. The shop was dark despite the windows. Wooden shelves lined the walls, and on them sat glass jars with all manner of ingredients, from plant to animal to mineral, all labeled in Alaz's steady quillmanship. There were two patrons in the store, a man and a woman. The man was tall, with long hair pulled back into a ponytail, and wore clean hunting leathers, as if blood had never touched them. He moved cautiously, almost hesitantly. Hunters I have seen were quick. Bren's father hunted, and he'd shoot his hand out like a snake when he wanted something. The woman inspected the shelves holding potions, salves, and poultices, her hand poking out through billowy sleeves of her robes to rotate a bottle, shake a jar. She walked around, pausing to stomp on certain parts of the floor. Her robes were voluminous, covering her like bedsheets, but she moved stiffly in them. The man looked over every corner of the shop before speaking. "'Is it safe?' the man said. "'I checked everywhere,' the woman said. "'No trap doors, no false walls.' "'There are no curious ears here,' Allah said. "'Good,' the man said, "'for I am no common huntsman.' "'Oh?' "'I apologize for the charade.' You, good apothecary, stand before the great Viscount Peregru. Lady Atha accompanies me, the captain of my guard. Atha threw her robes back in a way that looked practiced, revealing a polished steel breastplate and greaves. A sword hung from her hip. What can this humble apothecary do for such powerful nobles? Peregru narrowed his eyes. I intend to overthrow the Dark Lord. "'Which Dark Lord?' I asked. Alaz pinched my arm. "'What my apprentice means is there have been many rulers in a short span that have carried that name. Who specifically is it you're after?' "'Emperor Bagan, of course. 
Have you not felt the stranglehold of his tyranny here in Idleslade? We've seen soldiers, I said. Once. No, it was twice. They vacation here. Mostly buy things. Forgive my apprentice. He's a simple soul. There have been soldiers, but Idleslade has as of yet stayed outside Dark Lord Bagan's reach. Your luck won't last, Peregrew said. Bagan has forced his power over Almar, my city. He corrals our children into internment camps, forcing on each one the burden of literacy. Allah shook his head. God save us. These poor bakers, smiths, even farmhands. Once they can read, what then? Literacy doesn't better their trade. It only complicates their lives. Gives them a false motive. For instance, in Almar, there are a few apprentices for our blacksmiths, and these children now thumb their noses at the trade, aspiring to be scholars. While the libraries crowd with children, my city has metal left unworked. What of stories, my lord, I said. How would someone learn of another's deeds without books? Bards, boy, song. Stories are meant to be heard, not captured with static words. Where's the emphasis? It is too easy to lie in a book. Easier to catch a man lying when you hear him. I've caught many myself. Pardon, my lord, but I've heard it said that literacy betters our knowledge. The more we learn, the less skilled we become. An overabundance of knowledge cripples the soul. Best left to men like me who must shoulder such afflictions. Bagan breeds chaos. Peregrew looked down and sighed. He also has no right to the throne. My mother, Countess Adeline, God's keeper's soul, was the fifth cousin to the late emperor, leaving me the closest living relative. Some of my court tell me it is possible Bagan doesn't know this, but I am sure he does. You are a most wise man, Alaz said. It's always best to assume rather than question. Assumptions have kept me alive in these uncertain times. What can I do to help? Alaz said. You said earlier you needed a special potion. It is destiny that I overthrow Bagan and restore order to the land. The gods have decreed it. In a dream, the goddess Valana appeared and told me to seek out a potion of invulnerability to aid my destiny. She guided me here to you, apothecary. She guided you true, Alaz said. I can make such a potion. Most of the ingredients are here. Heart valve of a bull for strength, shell of a tortoise for endurance, thistle buds for holy protection. Only one is lacking. I need the cap of a drake and mushroom to bind the others together. There is a cave nearby where they grow, but they are guarded by Nezichiducks, beasts said to be spawned from flakes of the dead god Sethal's scalp. Peregrew drew his sword. I swear I will vanquish these abominations and return to you with the drake and mushroom. Alaz held up his hand. I humbly ask you to reconsider. My apprentice tallow is slight, and the chamber that houses the drake and mushrooms has but a small opening. Alaz handed me a dagger and a torch. I started to protest, but he gave me a sharp look, one that told me more than a stray backhand might find my face if I misspoke. Besides, I'd rather risk an apprentice than the future ruler of all Orinth. Peregrew hesitated, then sheathed his sword. 
His eyes fell on me. Can you read, boy? Alaza's hands poised on my arm, ready to pinch. Not terribly well, my lord. Gods be praised. Master Alaz gave me a map and told me to be swift. I knew where the cave was. The map was more for Peregru's sake than mine. I laced the sheathed dagger through my belt. After Peregru and Atha left, I had asked Master Alaz for a sword, and he had shoved me, saying I'd get a sword once I'd proven myself with a dagger. He was sending me to die. Perhaps I didn't clean fast enough. I could run, but to what? Back home to farm turnips? There were no soldiers coming, no danger but in the task laid before me. This much I knew. But I saw a chance to do something grand, like Sertanus in the stories. I would confront these Nezichaduks, spawned from godly dandruff though they may be, and slay them. I would claim the mushroom, or die a hero. But before that, I'd see Bren. Most of the markets were closing early. Ramshackle trading stalls were set up outside each farmhouse. The stalls were hastily made, more an outside shelf with a roof. The better-built ones had chairs. Homesteads lined the road, separated by acres of fields yielding tomatoes, carrots, turnips, and beets. The farmhouses ranged from compact little cottages, simple and wooden, to grand sprawling things, combining wood shingles with stone mason work. I liked to nod at each one and recite the names of the families to which each belonged in a grander fashion than they deserved, fabricating titles like Knight Commander Beetle or Sage Mudbottom. There was a sweet smell coming from the Rolf stand, and Tilly stood there with her hands folded, plump and smiling. Fresh strawberry tarts lined the shelf, some still steaming. She charged ten onyx, but I got her down to eight and bought one. Perhaps Bryn was hungry. As I walked the dirt road, gouged by horses' hooves and wagon wheels, a truthsayer monk walked toward me, black swirling tattoos covering his scalp and face. They sometimes wandered in from the monastery up the mountain to buy vegetables. I kept my eyes down and my mouth shut so as not to tempt him to speak some prophecy at me. Last time I saw one, I was with Alaz. We were gathering herbs, and Alaz had pulled me behind a bush as the monk passed. He said... They can only speak three times a day, and when they did, they would reveal some truth that would come to pass. He told me they were best avoided. I kept on forward, my eyes steady on the road after he pressed me. I worried that he might be following me, waiting for some cruel moment to spout his apocalyptic truths. I looked back, and he turned as well, his mouth about to open. I screamed, running, kept screaming all the way to Brent's house. Bren lived with her father on the edge of town, in a great log home, the kind made by notching whole trees and coating the seams with pitch. The house was just inside the forest and branches hung over the gabled roof, keeping the whole yard shaded. Smoke rose from the chimney in a steady gout. From the backyard came cutting sounds, blade on flesh, rising over the birds calling to each other. I walked around to where Bren worked. The smell of pine in my strawberry tart was overwhelmed by the metallic stench of blood. She had a deer strung up by its hind legs, gutted and half-skinned. She sawed through with precision, keeping the hide free from the unnecessary punctures. Her freckles were the best part about her. I liked her hair, too, and her breasts, of course, but her freckles. No one else had anything like that. 
Her arms were thin but rippled with muscle as she worked. Tallow, was that you screaming down the road? she asked. Yes, I said. I held the tarp behind my back. There were bandits. I drove them off. Did you? That was kind. Do you fare well? Well enough. I fare well as... Well, I've been given a very perilous task. I'm to slay beasts guarding important mushrooms. Nezichiduks. I've heard of them. Master Alas won't let my father go near them. He even pays father as compensation for staying away. Sounds dangerous. Her arms were red to the elbow, and I looked to the ground to keep from retching. It is, I said. I might stop by after. When it's done, maybe you'll be free for a pint? I may be. I may not be. Father's hunting and plans on bringing back more game. Perilous game. Can you smell that? I sniffed the air. <laughs> Strawberries. Bryn held up her hands. This is all I smell. Right. Well, I'll come back after I'm done. Are you hungry? Look, Tallow, I'm busy here. What did you say? I couldn't hear. Anyway, I have to get going. Uh, the cave and all that. Good luck. Many words came to mind that I could use to emphasize the peril, the countless ways the beasts of the cave might ravage me. But I spared Brent such thoughts. I gave her a nod she didn't see, as her attention was already back to the deer, her blood-covered hands cutting away hide. I placed the tart on the ground behind her. The detour to Brent's house cost me precious time, and the sun started down only fingers of it penetrating through the trees. The cave was just ahead the opening made from two rocks leaning against each other. Large boulders with cracks down the sides, sparkling with small quartz deposits. The mouth was like a wall of blackness. I recounted brave tales written about men like Peregru, vanquishing kingdoms, slaying wild beasts, and rescuing those in need. I dared think tales might recount my bravery here, if Lord Peregru succeeds, that my lowly actions today might trigger some kind of change. I lit the torch with flint and crept in. The cave smelled like clothes left damp for too long. The walls wept with moisture, and lichen covered it in patches. I was careful not to touch the sides and leave my scent for any other beast that might roam outside. The ground was slick, and I nearly slipped twice. I thought how Sir Tannis never slipped on wet mud. Perhaps I wasn't ready to have my own legend quite yet. Still, I practiced how it might sound, might begin. The legend of Talbert Hollow. One couldn't guess such an ordinary young man, an apprentice to the cruel Master of Laws, might rise to become a champion against abominations born from the dead skin of a god. With only courage and a sharp mind, Talbert Hollow drove the dagger's blade deep into the heart. No, the eyes. Maybe the throat? It would gurgle then, or perhaps the lung. It might wheeze. What sounds best in verse? Wheezing, sputtering, choking, or shrieking, perhaps? The cave grew darker, and I gasped as the torch flames waned. Behind me, there was no light. The cave took many turns as I ventured deeper. The torch was almost out when I found the opening just large enough to slither under. I could run back, ask for another torch, but then it would be too dark, too dark to come back with the wolves out. I remembered Sir Tannis and continued, sliding on my belly underneath. 
I extinguished the torch to save what little fuel might remain so I could find my way out after. That's how heroes think, always sure of success. The chamber beyond was only blackness to me. I crouched and waited for my eyes to acclimate to the darkness. Around me were horrible noises beyond telling, throaty huffs and snorts. I felt a warm spot on my crotch. Urine. Only a spurt. That was something else the tales failed to mention. I crept slowly forward until I came to a bend and saw a green glow, just what Allah said the mushrooms would do in the darkness. I was close. I dared peek around the corner, and my breath caught as I saw the horrible beasts, the Nezichiducks. They were hog-sized, bigger even, covered in what should have been white fur but looked green in the light. Each foot had three talons which they used to dig the earth. The lower jaws jutted out far, and countless sharp teeth lined their gruesome maws. They had eight eyes on their heads, like a spider, black soulless orbs they seemed to me. Beyond them, just a hundred feet or so, the mushrooms grew, but it might as well have been leagues. I could not move. Behind me came a grunt, and my hand trembled as I clasped my dagger's hilt. There must have been some passage I had missed where it emerged. Clever beast. I tried to pull the dagger out slowly to keep quiet, but the blade scraped as it came free from the leather. I lofted the weapon high and tried to think of some bold utterance to make clear my might, my worthiness of survival over this murderous creature. I turned to face it. The Nezichiduck locked its gaze on me, and we were frozen there, measuring each other waiting for the precise moment to strike. I still wasn't sure what noise I wanted it to make, trying to suppose where its heart might be, where its lung might be. The Nezichiduck snorted at me and turned away, lazily pawing at the ground. I watched. Sure, it was a ruse, and yet the beast lumbered toward the rest of them, clawing up soil. They chewed dirt, possibly grubs as well, but dirt I was sure of. They milled about like merchants at the stalls. I stalked toward the mushrooms, keeping an eye on the beasts. They could still strike. All those teeth. One of the Nezichideks howled, spitting out a rock. I screamed back, lofting my dagger once more. They wailed one at a time, until all three brayed like donkeys as they scampered out of the chamber into some darker recess. I plucked a mushroom cap and looked around. There was no grand tale here, but there might be. I saw next to the spit-out rock was a tooth from one of the Nezichiducks, a start. I looked at my dagger and inspected the ground, paying careful attention to how far apart a Nezichiduck's claws were spaced in the dirt they'd dragged through. I entered the shop with my sleeve torn off and tied around my forearm carrying the draken mushroom. I made sure dirt covered my face. Master Alaz ushered me in. This is just the thing, boy, Alaz said. I drew the blood-covered dagger and placed it on the counter. Peregru and Atha watched me. Was it fearsome? Peregru asked. It was, I said, most fearsome, but I was able to best it. I stabbed it first in the lung, and it wheezed monstrously. Then I slashed its throat, and it gurgled as life faded from its cold eyes. Eight eyes. They closed one at a time. Impressive, Allah said. 
Peregrine clasped my shoulders. Well done. That's not all, I said. Alaz's eyes widened in a warning as I unwrapped my forearm. It clawed me during the struggle. Peregrine inspected the wound, three red tracks already congealing. Alaz bit his lower lip. This is folly, Peregrine said. Let's not be hasty, Alaz said. Stay your tongue, apothecary. I say, this is folly. That a boy be sent out to aid my cause and come back with a grievous wound. Folly! Peregrine grabbed my cheeks. Once I overthrow Bagan, I will make sure the ballad sung in every tavern include an entire couplet for your actions here, young Tallow. You will be immortalized in song. I bowed my head. My actions are not worthy of such praise. Alaz took Peregru on one arm and Atha on the other. The potion will take time to brew. It should be ready by sunrise. Meanwhile, why don't you find lodging? The fox and the rat should have rooms available. Alaz closed the door behind the pair as they walked out. Let me see your arm. Alaz held my arm, turning it over, squeezing it. "'scratching it with a fingernail which drew a cry from me. "'Well done. Even the spacing is right. "'Though Nezich duck claws leave wider wounds than that.' "'Alaz turned and dropped the mushroom into the heated cauldron. "'You'll make an apothecary yet.' "'Is the mushroom magical?' "'In a way. It makes the potion glow. "'No one believes anything's magic unless it glows.' "'Does the potion work, then?' How long will it last? I suspect Lord Peregrine will feel invincible right up until the moment he drinks it. What do you mean? You still have plenty to learn. Go on, take the rest of the day off. I was rewrapping my arm when Peregrine and Atha returned. One more thing, apothecary, Peregrine said. What sort of duration can I expect from this concoction? I drew in a sharp breath. Not at the question, but because the truth-sayer came in behind them, hands tucked into opposite sleeves. Black lines coiled around his face like snakes, up and over his head. Eyes were all milky white, dead-looking, save his black, piercing pupils. His mouth opened. "'That potion isn't potion, but it will kill you all the same,' the truth-sayer said. His voice was higher than I expected. Peregrine shook his head. What rubbish. My liege, Atha said, I've heard of these men. It's said they're incapable of lies. Please, these monks are the most illiterate people within hundreds of leagues. Celibate as well. Their lives are a lie. Peregrine nodded to Alaz. You can tell me the specifics in the morning. Peregrine and Atha departed once more, leaving us alone with the truth-sayer. The monks stared at Alaz. You will die in three years, the truth-sayer said. Allah stepped back, once, twice, and then fell into a chair, his mouth open. The truth-sayer's eyes locked on me. The stockroom wasn't far, and I could scream away with the door shut, drowning out the monk's voice, but I stayed and stared right back. He said nothing, just kept watching, and I thought maybe he spoke before he came, Maybe his third utterance was to Allah's, but then his mouth opened once more. You, 
he said. We'll drink ale tonight. I stood motionless. Allah has told me much about truthsayers. I'd heard they can fall, that if what they speak ever fails to occur, their skin turns black, their tattoos turn white, and they are cursed to only lie. No one would have to endure this one's furious honesty if I stopped him. I could make that happen. I could make his prophecy fail, because truth is monstrous. It is the destruction of possibility. I'd heard that they can fail, that if what they speak ever fails to occur, their skin turns black, their tattoos turn white, and they are cursed to only lie. No one would ever have to endure this one's furious honesty if I stopped him. I can make that happen. I can make his prophecy fail because truth is monstrous. It is the destruction of possibility. I realized the freedom in lies just then. Brent came in the shop behind the truthsayer, holding the strawberry tart, which was now crushed and brushed with dirt. Did you leave this for me, Tallow? It took some effort to take my eyes off the monk and focus on Bren. I thought you might be hungry. You should have just given it to me. I stepped on it by accident. It was yours to step on. The way I see it, I owe you ten onyx. Fancy a pint? I looked back at the truthsayer. Sure, I said. Good times. Truthsayers. Boy, we could sure use more of them these days, huh? If you enjoyed this week's story, or our stories in general, remember the only way we're able to do any of this is through the generous donations of listeners such as yourself. You don't have to give, but many of you do, and that's awesome. And I'm sure wonderful things will happen to you because of the good, weird karma you've built up. Go to treblecast.org and click on any of our support options. You might have heard me plug before our newish premium content feed, Treblecast B-Sides, available to Treblecast fans who are awesome enough to support the show with a 10 bucks a month automatic subscription. Treblecast B-Sides sends you additional stories, as well as odds and ends each month. Just this week I posted up a new song of mine, a nostalgic cover, really, of every awesome sitcom in the 1990s TGIF lineup. Cosin Larry Appleton approved. As well as a fun story by classic science fiction author William Ten, whose sharp satire and sense of humor has always made me a favorite of his. Ten bucks a month is nothing to support your favorite podcast, especially if you could see our killer October lineup right now, which includes our incredible 300th episode special. Drabblecast B-Sides is just a little extra way for us to say thank you and give you even more weirdness each month. Hit up Drabblecast.org, sign up for Drabblecast B-Sides on the right, you'll get an email with login info as well as a huge, verging on disgusting, sloppy kiss blown by myself your way from Baltimore. What can I say? I just really appreciate y'all's support. All right, moving on to our 100-character story winner this week. Aside from having open submissions for our 100-word Drabbles in the Drabblecast discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org, we also run a weekly 100-character, not counting spaces, contest from there. The winner each week is handpicked by the editors and posted early on our Twitter feed, at the Drabblecast. Give it a shot. It's fun and easy to write the things. This week's winner is first-time winner Bag of Bones, with this one right here. Spiked Punch. A trashed gymnasium. 
and his mother passed out in a chair. Oedipus began to regret his choice in prom dates. Don't we all? Good one, bag of bones. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter at the Drabblecast. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes or wherever you pick up the feed, blog about us, tell a friend. It's all part of spreading the weird. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Sean as a Party. Check out Sean's work at sean-asaparty.com. You'll find a link in our show notes. Our program this week was brought to you by Drabblecast Managing Editor Nikki Drayden, our Submissions Editor Nathan Lee, Art Director Bo Kyer, with additional help from David Carvin, David Steffen, and Tom Baker. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you, you will drink ale tonight. player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. An hour ago this place was loaded. A noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all splurred when slow Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.